Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Today, you're out of talks through episode 24 of the podcast. And good news, everyone. This is not the final episode. After all, Jen and I just finished our fundraising, our yearly fundraising on Kickstarter last week. We did pretty well, certainly well enough to be able to sign up for yet another year of me just blathering nonstop about board games. So let's get right to that right after this. Okay, first up, like always, let's talk about some new and upcoming games of interest. Not very many this month, surprisingly, but I'm sure that will change in upcoming episodes. In fact, I'm thinking next month I might actually do a special devoted to all the new games that are going to be at Origins, but I'll worry about that at some point in the future. For now, let's just talk about what's new, starting with Morel's Foray which is the first expansion for a wonderful little two-player-only game called Morels. I did a run-through for it a million years ago. It's a game about going for a walk in the forest and collecting mushrooms to cook them up for dinner. Had wonderful, beautiful art, sweet, charming, fast game. And honestly, I never expected there to be a, an expansion, and yet here is one, and it seems like it adds several cool new things, like weather, that will... Depending on how the weather shifts, it will fundamentally change the landscape that we're traveling through, and there's new items we can collect, and uh, you know several new things. For some people, I think what's even more exciting is the fact that you can now play it as a three- or a four-player game, not only as a two-player game. And I haven't read much about that, because of course it's not of any interest to me or Jen, but it sounds like that might be interesting too, because it has to do with simultaneous player action selection. I don't know, that might be neat. But... Probably more than anything else, I'm mentioning this right now because I'm a little late to the party. This has actually been on Kickstarter now, and there's a less than a week left to back it. And the reason people might be interested in this is because some folks watched my original run-through of Morales and wondered, hey, where did you get those cool walking sticks and those neat frying pans? Uh, my version just has cardboard chits of walking sticks and frying pans. And the thing is, I got the game when it was originally produced, very limited quantity, and the designer, Brett... He actually handcrafted all of those pieces. They were very, very limited in scope and quantity. And if anybody's ever wanted any of Brent's handcrafted, cool, cool, neat little pieces, now is your chance. Go back the Kickstarter, which, like I said, closes in the next five days, because this is your opportunity to get more handcrafted, hand-carved pieces, including a brand new one, a uh, neat little mushroom itself. It's actually neat. There's On the Kickstarter page, there's pictures of him working on these things by the hundreds. I can't even imagine how painful it must be to make all these things with these little tools he's got, but... They really add a lot to the gameplay experience, and if you've ever wanted them, this is your chance. So, like I said, not much time left on this Kickstarter. Sorry I'm a bit late to the party, but that, folks, is Morel's Foray. Then let's move on to another expansion for Paperback, which is an awesome, awesome deck-building game crossed with Scrabble. I actually... 
listed it on my top 10 must-have games, you know, kind of my Desert Island games, and it's getting a new expansion that adds, apparently, 80 new cards with new abilities, new typo cards, uh, new, uh, you know, card covers, the, the objective cards. I don't really know much more than that. There's very little information, but I don't care. We love paperback, and it's interesting. Even though we really enjoyed hardback as well, and if anything, hardback might be the better deck builder game, and paperback is the more interesting word building puzzle of a game, we so enjoyed the co-op nature of it. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to you know new content, and I don't know when it's coming out. You know, it's not on Kickstarter right now. Maybe it's going to be direct release. I don't know, but paperback was a phenomenal game. So, eighty new cards, yes, please. Now. Another expansion. Oh my goodness, that's three in a row. Let's talk about Peloponnese, Heroes, and Colonies. And I got to admit, I did not expect this either because I figured Peloponnese, now that Peloponnese the card game has come out, I figured that's what was going to be getting all the love from designer Burn Einstein. He wasn't going to go back because, you know, Peloponnese itself has gotten so many expansions. I figured he was just going to be spending the next few years crossing them over to the card game, but. The, you know, Pelepides, the big box game, is not over yet, folks. Heroes and Colonies sounds like a very cool new expansion. First of all, uh, a, a new disaster gets added to the game, so there's more potential disasters. It's Persians invading. That's cool. But what's even cooler is being able to recruit heroes. In addition to landscapes and tiles, now we can get ancient antiquities-era heroes that will give all kinds of powers to our little societies we're building up. That's very, very cool. But maybe what's coolest of all is colony boards, which replace, in the main game, everybody has the exact same... Well, they have their own starting setup tile that indicates you know what their starting resources are, but everybody has the same mat that you keep track of all the resources. Apparently now, everybody gets their own personal, specialized, unique colony mat, which I don't know what's going to be new and unique about them, but it just adds to the replayability and the setup variability of the game. That's actually awesome. I don't know what's going on with Peloponnese the card game. Hopefully all this stuff is going to make it over there too. But in the meantime, Peloponnese is still king of the hill. And hooray, more Peloponnese stuff. Who knew? I'm very, very excited for Peloponnese heroes and colonies. Oh my gosh, this is... I didn't didn't plan it this way, folks. But here we are, four expansions in a row. Because now I am going to talk about Runebound... Unbreakable Bonds. And now, this is the... I don't think this is the first expansion for the new third edition of Runebound that came out last year. But this is the first really important one as far as I'm concerned because it adds full, pure, cooperative gameplay to Runebound, which is very, very cool. Runebound 2nd Edition, there were some opportunities in some of the expansions. They were kind of like little afterthought ways you could play cooperatively, but it's never really been a big focus. Runebound has at its heart always been a competitive race. And, you know, Runebound 3rd Edition was certainly no stranger to that as well. And, you know, while we were hugely disappointed with Runebound 3rd Edition, because it seemed like the designers, in their effort to kind of streamline the sometimes admittedly bumpy gameplay of Runebound 2nd Edition, they kind of like robbed the heart and soul of the experience. I mean, the whole game became, for me and Jen, just a lot less compulsive and interesting. But a bigger problem we had with 3rd Edition was the fact that 
players had to start directly fighting each other because when I was going to go out and you know fight some particular bad guy out in the woods, I didn't just fight against an AI. Jen, my opponent, would have to take on the role of the monster and make decisions on the monster's behalf and do her best to try to destroy me. That in and of itself, putting aside any other issues we had with we didn't like the changes of the way terrain dice worked or on it, the, the core fundamental thing of we're constantly having to directly make decisions to try to destroy each other ruined it out of the gate for us. So, I'm a little bit interested now with Unbreakable Bonds because it introduces a bunch of new stuff. But the most important thing is this notion that when you go up to fight a bad guy... Um, you know, everybody casts the you know you cast your runes, the bad guy casts their runes. But instead of another human being then having to make decisions about how to play those runes on behalf of the monster, the monsters get these special player cards, and all you do is you cast the runes, and then you line up the runes with certain boxes on the 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 monster. AI card, and that says exactly how the monsters are going to use those runes. Now, the monsters are still unpredictable because you have no idea when they cast their runes whether they're going to come up with wild cards or attacks or whatever it might be. But once all the runes have been cast and then deployed... It sounds really cool. You can now make very smart, informed decisions because you know exactly how the monster is going to behave this turn, and that might change how you decide to use your runes. It sounds like it turns the combat into a really cool puzzle. And Jen and I, we really liked the rune casting. We thought the you know the core mechanisms, the physicality of it was really neat. We just didn't like having to purposely try to destroy each other. But playing against um, you know an AI, or not really quite an AI. I mean, I've looked at pictures of it on Fantasy Flight site. It looks really clean, simple, elegant. And I gotta say, I'm thinking about going back and trying again, which is a bummer because I actually got rid of my third edition copy of Runebound after getting rid of my second edition copy of Runebound because I thought third edition was gonna be so bad or, or so awesome, and then we just didn't like it. Now I gotta go out and get another copy because I gotta say, I am very, very stoked. Still not excited about some of the other stuff. Still wish they had kept the terrain working the way it did in the original, but this AI puzzle of combat. This could be something really, really cool. So Runebound, Unbreakable Bonds, that's pretty high on my must-try list. But now, enough of that. Let's actually talk about an actual full game, shall we? Um, ReWorld, R-E-W-O-R-L-D, is apparently the latest game from uh, uh, Kiesling and Kramer, Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer, who are you know the, the Wunderkinds, the dynamic duo behind some of the most wonderful, elegant, brilliant Euro designs that have come out over the last couple of decades now. I think these guys have been working together. And, you know, we tend to always really enjoy their games, and this is their big one coming out this year from Eggertspiel. You know, which is, you know, always a great combo. This one is about outer space colonization or terraforming. Um, although it sounds like it's less about the terraforming and more about pre pre preparation for terraforming. Apparently what we're trying to do is load up our big terraforming world ships that are going to go off to faraway planets. And we're using a card system to kind of draft all the different modules we want to install on our ship. And uh, it's, it's kind of hard to get a feel from the description on BoardGameGeek. But basically... As part of setup in a given round, a whole bunch of modules are out there, and I might have certain modules I want to get and place into certain positions on my world ship. But to play them, I've got a handful of cards. And 
if uh, and and basically, I've got to play the right cards in the right position based on what cards other players have used. And not only does the card determine you know which module I'm going to get, but it also determines where I'm going to put it on my ship because I'm trying to stack these different modules adjacent to each other on my ship so that when I get to the planet I want to terraform, I can do it with mass efficiency. So. I don't really quite have a firm idea. Looking at it, it kind of looks like the art kind of reminds me of making these weird spatial lobbies in Galaxy Trucker, although the gameplay is very, very different. All I know is Kramer and Kiesling, they're brilliant designers. This is a really outside-the-box subject matter theme for them, and I expect the gameplay is going to be very, very cool. And I almost kind of get a... A Castles of Burgundy kind of vibe in that, oh yeah, well, you know, the dice I get, that determines what I can get, but it also determines where I can put it. Except now we're using cards to determine what we can get and where we'll put it. Could be cool. Actually, not even could be. I am 100% confident. I have pure, unadulterated confidence that ReWorld will be a game that Jen and I enjoy quite a bit. And let's see, now another one. Dragonfire. This kind of came out of nowhere as well. It's actually the full title... Just Dragonfire on Borgangi, but it's actually Dungeons and Dragons Dragonfire. And this is not exactly a sequel, I guess more of a spin-off of Shadowrun Crossfire, which longtime fans of my sh- uh, show know Jen and I love Shadowrun Crossfire to pieces. It's an excellent cooperative deck builder with a, a small legacy type element. As you level up your characters, you make permanent decisions because you apply stickers and stuff like that. But the core gameplay is so great. It's such an absolutely brilliant, challenging, tense, taut, action-packed puzzle. We absolutely love the game. And if you remember my original run-through, I complained at the time, the only thing, my only issue I've ever had with Shadowrun Crossfire was I've never been that big a fan of the Shadowrun mythos. It's a kind of fantasy hybrid with, you know, Basically, high fantasy meets Blade Runner. You know, it's set in the far future world where orcs and goblins and dragons exist. It's neat. I, I like it, but it's it's never really drawn me in in the same way that just like a meat and potato fantasy situation would. And I know Jen feels the same way. So imagine my surprise. Imagine my delight when I found out they were taking the same core gameplay of Shadowrun Crossfire and transferring it into Dungeons & Dragons Dragonfire. Yay! This should be awesome. It should be a no-brainer, right? One problem. The rule, the everything about the game that's been announced uh, has, says it's a three to six player game. No, why? Why I shake my fist at the heavens? Because of course that means we're never actually going to play the thing. Because uh, I mean, it, Shadowrun Crossfire is a phenomenal two player game, and while I imagine we could probably play this as a two-player with each of us having to take on two separate characters we control. So we'd emulate a four-player game with only two players. We have zero interest in doing that. So that kind of makes it dead on arrival for us, no matter how excited I am. But, good news, everyone. I actually contacted the lead developer on the game, and I asked him, Dude! What a gives? Come on, two-player! Because, you know, Shadowrun Crossfire is so well-known. It's such a... So- Not everybody agrees. Some people think it's too hard at two-player, but Jedi, we think it's phenomenal. I know a lot of other people do. Will Dragonfire be playable two-player? And he said, we're working on it. We're working on it. So, 
That is the slim shimmer of hope I am holding on to. That by the time the thing comes out, they will have gotten their ducks in a row. I understand. You know, I can see why they want to expand it. Because you know, the original Shadow and Crossfire tapped out at four. It was a two to four player game. Although, of course, you can play it solo too. So they want to have more people around the table to get more of that Dungeon and Dragons feel. I get that. And maybe the problem is that in shifting and tweaking and balancing the game to make it work with up to six players, it just doesn't work well with two anymore. I don't know. I hope so. Fingers crossed. Come on, everybody. Um, let's let's hope for the best that Dungeons & Dragons Dragonfire will support two players when it comes out. Because if so, it has just rocketed. Is it my number two most anticipated? Well, Pandemic Legacy 2 is, of course, my number one most anticipated. And right now, Charterstone is my number two, which is another big Legacy Euro-style game. But this might push into my number two. If it supports two players. Fingers crossed. Dungeons & Dragons, Dragonfire. And now the last one. What the? I'm back to expansions. Yep, another expansion for a wonderful, wonderful game. Talk about a game that had a two-player, three-player bit of schizophrenia about it when it first came out. Between Two Cities is a very, very cool SimCity-style city-building game. Which at first I wasn't too terribly interested in because... It's designed primarily to be a three or more player game because as I'm, I'm actually, at any given time, I'm between two cities. I'm building a city to my left and a city to my right. But the one I'm working on my left, I'm collaborating with the player to my left. And the one on my right, I'm collaborating to the player on my right. It's a brilliant game. And the original game's rules for two-player that came in the box were just complete non-starters for me and Jen. They were just not interested at all. But the developers did actually come up with cool, what do you call them, machinima? You know, dummy player rules that made Between Two Cities a phenomenal two-player experience as well. So, you know, if they could do it for Between Two Cities, come on, Catalyst. I know you can do it for Dragonfire as well. But anyway, back to this. I haven't even mentioned the name. There is now an expansion for Between Two Cities coming out called Capitals. And, uh, well, it adds, what is it, three new things. New special civic buildings that when they get added to the city you're building to your left or your right... Kind of give you specific goals because these civic buildings want to be next to some buildings but not next to other buildings. And every time you play, you're going to get a different one. So, I mean, you have different civic buildings to your city to the left and the right. So that means right off the bat, I mean, that gives you a lot more interesting decision-making about how you're going to deploy these tiles because suddenly these civic buildings have certain needs. You also have uh, districts or district in-game scoring, which means every time you play, you're going to have additional goals you're trying to shoot for. That means different players are shooting for different goals as well. I think. I'm not sure about that one. But the one that looks the coolest is landscapes. That in the base game, you just start laying tiles and by the end you've made a little I think a 5x5 grid but now, you start out with a landscape mat that you're building on top of and around. So, I mean, the, the pictures I saw, it was a mat that had like a river with a bridge going through it. And so you had to build up your little city around this river. And the bridge that goes over, it connects two buildings. And so you might have that on one side. You have a completely different landscape on the other. And you have to... I, and so now it makes me... Because it takes up this extra space, you, you're building a 6x6, six six, I think, instead of a 5x5. Five it looks really, really cool. And you know, Between Two Cities is already awesome at any player count. So I'm very, very excited about Between Two Cities Capitals. And that's it, folks. Like I said, a short list this month. Maybe next month it'll be a longer one. But now, uh, let's hold on for a second, and we'll move on to some Top 10 Revisits. <laughs> Okay, everybody, top 10 time. In theory, I could talk about 
top 10 elegant games, which is a video I just put up like an hour ago, which unfortunately means there hasn't really been enough time for anybody to look at it and respond and say, hey, WTF, what about X, Y, and Z? You don't even understand what elegant means. You're a fool. Rado, a fool, I tell you. So... Um, normally, I like to get my top tens a couple weeks out before I do the podcast, but April was just a mess with the Kickstarter campaign. A very cattywampus month for us. But I do have another top ten topic I could uh, go on about, because in April, I also revisited my top ten of 2016, and I expanded it into a top 25, which was pretty cool, pretty fun. But in spite of the fact that I have now run down my top 25 favorite games of 2016... You you know, there are still many, many more games I could talk about. Well, you know, certainly the, the top 26 to the top 30. I mean, I could just keep on going. And I didn't think I would do that. But, you know, there were several games that people kept asking about. What about, what about, what about? You know, both in my, uh, my initial version of the list back in December and then my update just a few weeks ago. So I figured I should address them. And then I figured I'd actually spend a few minutes talking about some other games that just didn't get a chance to come up for various and sundry reasons. So let's revisit 26 one more time and start off by talking about Scythe and Terraforming Mars. Yes, folks, I know Scythe and Terraforming Mars were amazing. Uh, they are actually, according to Board Game Geek, the number one and number two game. No, no, the number two and the number three games of 2016. And... Yeah, I know most people don't think that Terraforming Mars has too much player-versus-player interaction in it for their taste. And I'm so happy for you that you guys can enjoy it. But in the end, Jen and I just did not enjoy bringing meteors down on top of each other's heads. I'm glad other people can enjoy it. It just wasn't for us. Um, for people who want to try to convince me, and a week doesn't go by, that there isn't somebody trying to convince me that Terraforming Mars... No, really, you like it. Trust me. It, we've tried it. It doesn't work for us. There's actually now, I think it was Terraforming Mars that prompted me to make a full FAQ entry at faq.rado.com to address this once and for all that, you know, our particular circumstances meant Terraforming Mars was not a good fit for us. And for the same reason, neither is Scythe. And I know people keep saying, but you gotta try it. You'll see. You'll see. You'll understand how wonderful it is. I don't know. There is, it turns out, there is a guy here in Malta who does have it. So maybe I'll borrow from him some point. But I got to tell you, folks, it's so low on my things to do. And if you want to know why, again, go check out faq.rado.com. But let's talk about some other ones. Uh, Arkham Horror. People were saying, hey, wh why didn't that make the list? Arkham Horror, the card game. You know what? It was literally my 26, I think. Yeah, or my 26 or my 27. Um, really, really amazing. I was amazed how well that worked for us. Great, great stuff. Like I said, we totally have kept it. The only reason we didn't is because I did not want to go down the rabbit hole of monthly or bi-monthly updates and constantly having to get more and more and more and more and more stuff. Um, but yeah, great, great game. You know, one of the best of the year. Um, well, I guess not quite. You know, not quite 25, but still, we really, really enjoyed it. But let's talk about some other stuff, shall we? Ones that I did not do run-throughs for. First of all, well, actually, one I probably will be, hopefully doing one before too long, would be the Exit the Game series. It came out in 2016, but only in German. And recently, they've come out in English. And oh my gosh, these escape room in boxes, they're amazing. 
Although it's weird. They kind of vacillate from amazing to soul-crushingly, destroyingly awful um, within, within the confines of just one session. But I'll end up talking about that. Eventually, I'm sure we'll do a run-through of Unlock or Escape the Game. Because Jen and I, we played all the Unlock scenarios and all the Escape the Game scenarios. Long story short, we've loved them. We would love to continue playing more. Um, and I've got to figure out a way to do run-throughs that don't spoil them. I've got some ideas. I think it'll work pretty well. But uh, but again, it was officially a 2016 game. It, just, it wasn't available in English. So how would they rate? Would they have made my top 25? Honestly, I think Escape the Game would. Specifically, I think we... Hey, honey, which one do we like the most? There was the, the Mad Scientist, the Log Cabin, and the... What was it? The, the, the one we just did, the final one? No, because um, you're mixing up with the unlock. There was a mad scientist there too. There, there was the, the the creepy cabin in the woods. The what? The you like the Egyptian one the most. I think I like the cabin in the woods one the most. And so the 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 the, the mad scientist was your least favorite of the three. That was the one where oh yeah yeah I think for us if you're buying them, Jen likes the Egyptian one the max. I like the. I just said it. The, 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 the Cabin in the Woods one's the best. The, the opposite for our second. And we both enjoyed... We enjoyed it, but the um, you know, Escape from the Secret Lab was our least favorite. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know exactly where, but I think they would push into the 25. We just hadn't played them in time for my update. Uh, Star Trek Panic. I got to play that as a three-player game at Gamma in early 2016. And I liked it because, you know, of course, I'm the biggest Star Trek fan out there. I've never cosplayed. I'm just shy of cosplaying. I'm that much of a Star Trek fan. And the original series is still my favorite. It's totally my jam. And, you know, I like the gameplay of Castle Panic. And Star Trek Panic is just basically taking the cooperative game Castle Panic and, you know, retheming it to Star Trek, but adding a bunch of really cool Star Trek-themed gameplay. It was still it just had the same problem that Star Trek Panic all, or Castle Panic had for us. It's just too easy. I probably should try it because I love the presentation, the production of it. But yeah, the one time I played it, we played a three-player game and we won, and we were not really in any big danger of losing. So I, I just I don't know. Um, I probably should go back and try it. But anyway, New Bedford. I suspect that game had the potential to make it into my top 25. As I read the rules for it, they actually wanted me to do a run-through when it was on Kickstarter. But I, I took a look and said no. For one reason, there's no way Jen was going to enjoy a Euro economic simulation about killing whales. Even if it, I mean, you know, obviously if it was set into modern day, oh my god, you know, you're monsters. But you know, even set back in you know, the golden era of whaling when mankind wasn't literally destroying the ocean, it's still just I mean, there's no way Jen would be able to enjoy herself and get let herself be wrapped up in a simulation of whale killing. Um, you know, even if every bit of the whale was used because whale oil and the blubber and all that, it's just, I'm sure it's a great game. I, I'm not saying it's a great theme. It's just one that Jen was never going to enjoy. So why would we play one we can't enjoy? Uh, but my hat's off to it. I'm glad it made it into um, Board Game Geek's top 100 of the year. That's really amazing. Ice Cool. I have to admit, I dismissed this completely out of hand. Um, you know, just a neat little dice flicking game. We've already got Rampage. We've got Catacombs. I figured we don't need, or I'm sorry, not dice flicking. It's, but it's a flicking dexterity game. And we already have a few flicking. If we didn't need another one. And my understanding is it's a pretty simple game. You know, it doesn't have anywhere near the depth of these ones that we do have. But then Jen found out about it. And apparently you're, you're flicking Weeble Wobbles. Um, the Weeble and they wobble, but they don't fall down. And Jen fell so in love with that idea. She's like, why didn't we try this game? Why didn't we try Ice Cool? And so 
Apparently, I made a terrible mistake by not seeking it out. So, uh, we'll probably try it at some point. I can't imagine it's going to make my top 25, though. But it looks cool. Um, you know, using your box lid and your and your box to actually make walls that you, to that, you know kind of work with the board. I mean, it, it it seems like it has a very handsome production, and I'm sure it's really cute and charming. So maybe someday we'll give Ice Cool a try. One deck dungeon, man, this is high on my list. I really wanted to give this a go because I love the idea of you know recreating the old classic PC net hack style dungeon crawl in card format. It looks really good. Apparently it's been pretty popular. It's got a it's got an expansion that got kickstarted very successfully as well. Um, but I live in Europe and it's really not a very easy game to get over here. So I don't know if I'll ever give it a go. It might have been a contender. I don't know. Islebound, I am almost 100% positive would have punched into the top 25. Maybe the top 10. Probably not, but maybe the top 10, but guaranteed the top 25. I just never ended up getting a copy. Um, Red Raven Games. This is—I mean, I've done my run through, so you can you can actually see it. But I think they are actually going to be sending me a full commercial copy at the same time they send me a final copy of oh, what's it? The Klondike Rush, the new game they've got coming out this year. So we'll get a chance to do it, but unfortunately, it'll be too late to retrofit into the top twenty-five. But I just mentioned here, I'm sure I am almost positive this very very gorgeous, cool, fast-playing pick-up and deliver. It made my top ten pick-up and deliver games, um, but I just I couldn't be sure because I only played a prototype, never got to play the final thing. But it was very very cool uh, game of pirate hopping or um, island hopping privateers from Ryan Rock Lockett Islebound. I'm sure we'll love it. Lorenzo Il Magnifico is another one that I did a run-through for, and a lot of people said, hey, you really like that game. How could it not make your top 25? And I, 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 you know, honestly, it was one of the best games of the year. It should have easily made my top 10, in all honesty. And if I played Lorenzo Il Magnifico predominantly as a three- or four-player game, I'm 100% confident it would have made my top 25. High level of confidence it would have pushed in my top 10. But I talked about this in my final thoughts. The implementation for the two-player... They just missed a trick, and it would have been so easy to fix. And just I couldn't, in good conscience, because I only played the I, I rank all of these games in terms of their two player viability. And I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of people disagree with me. Um, again, you can watch my final thoughts for you know what what I took exception to. Brilliant, brilliant game design. And I'm still just on the fence about keeping it because it just ticks me off the way they did the two player. Ah, alrighty. Anyway. Another game that I did not do a run through for, and I kind of intended to, and you know they were actually they were going to send me a um, they were going to send me a prototype. I was going to do one for the Kickstarter, but I, I was just there was at the time I I was way too busy. I, I think that was around Essen time. I had way too many games to cover. I could not take another one on. And then you know they were willing to send me a final commercial version, and ultimately I said no. Uh, what am I talking about? I'm talking about Conan, which is a big sprawling cooperative. High fantasy adventure game. It looks gorgeous. I really like the gameplay. I think it's really, really sharp. But here's the reality, folks. I've got Gloomhaven now. I even even if we if we get it and we enjoy it as much as I think we would enjoy it, because it seems like it's another one of these really cool Euro style Ameritrash themed cooperative fun dungeon crawls with really smart gameplay mechanisms. I bet you we'd enjoy it. Uh, you know, in much the same way that we enjoy claustrophobia, because it is a game where one player has to play the dungeon master, controlling the bad guys, and then the other players control the heroes. I, I, I bet it'd be great, but you know, it comes in a ginormous box. I do not need another gigantic box. I just I don't have room for any more of these huge boxes, game developers. And then on top of that, 
I don't know how I'm ever going to get a chance to go back and play Claustrophobia. Anytime we ever play any, any fantasy dungeon crawl, no matter how much we loved it, we'll just be thinking, why aren't we playing Gloomhaven? We could be playing Gloomhaven right now. And I think the same thing would be true for Conan. From what I've read, it might have, I don't know if it would have pushed into my top 25, but I bet you it's really, really good. And um, it's it actually, again, I have a friend here in Malta who has it. So maybe someday he'll come over and we'll sit down and we'll play it for an afternoon. But I bet you after we're done, we'll say, wow, that was really cool. We could have played Gloomhaven, though. Oh, Gloomhaven, you are the destroyer of other games. Uh, Millennium Blades was another one I did a run-through for, and we really liked it. Such a cool game. You can see my run-through. Um, like Islebound, if I had actually gotten a full commercial release of it, I think I have a high level of certitude it might have made it in my top 25 of the year. Because it was so outside the box, so smart, so clever. You know, I um, really hit a lot of nostalgia buttons for me and Jen because we used to play Magic the Gathering. We used to play, I'm not saying we were professional tournament level Magic the Gathering players, but we played in a lot of sealed deck tournaments. I actually won one once. Um, I was that good. But yeah, I never ended up getting a full commercial. And I believe this is another big oversized box game. So that's a, another problem with it as well. Oh, and then for the folks who are wondering, wait, what about Santorini? Um, Santorini, we only just recently got the full commercial. I couldn't, I couldn't judge it based on the prototype I'd played. I didn't get it in time to decide whether it'd make it in the top 25. I think it might. I don't know. Let's see. Oh, and then there's a few others that I will probably never play. But, man, I would sure like to. Vast, the Crystal Cavern. I so love the idea of this. A dungeon crawl where one player takes on the role of the brave knight. One player is the dragon. One player is the goblins. One player is the thief. One player is the cave itself. All these players pursuing their own specific goals in this weird ecosystem where what one player does affects what the other. They all have conflicting goals they're trying, but they you know can like take on temporary alliances because you know I mean well the enemy my enemy is my friend even though we're all playing against each other it seems so brilliant. But I can't imagine it works well with two at all. But it's certainly one I'd love to play sometime. Same for Seafall. Man, I did get a chance to play it as like, I think I played it as a five-player game. Played the first two levels, had a blast. Now those first two missions were before combat is introduced. And I think the combat would kill it. And then, of course, we could never play it because Jen and I would only ever play a two-player. So it was dead on arrival because it was a three-player minimum. So ultimately, knowing I would never get a chance to play it, I ultimately broke down and looked at through all the spoiler threads and found out everything that the full game offered if you play through this big, epic legacy campaign game from Rob Davio. And oh my god, I want to have experienced it even more now. There are so many cool, neat things it does if you play it long enough to get to the higher levels. But I'll never get to experience them firsthand because three-player minimum and a high quotient of player versus playerness pretty much... Killed it on, you know, DOA for us. Never get a chance to. Uh, Captain Sonar. Man, I would love to try this as well. And I know you can play it two-player, but that defeats the purpose. This is a real-time team-versus-team game where players are you know, working in opposing submarines, trying to hunt each other and sink each other. I bet you Jen would enjoy it. I, bet, I know for a fact I would enjoy it. But, you know... Living where we do, out in the middle of nowhere, it's just not something that's ever going to happen. This is this was high on my list of games to play when I went to Laracon. I was really, really hoping, because, hey, I'm with a whole bunch of other people, I'll get a chance to play it. It just didn't happen. I think this is my number one. If I ever get to another convention, I must seek this out. I must play it. I'm sure it's one of the best games of the year. But, you know, just 
wasn't made for me in gen. And then the last one, another one, same thing, Adrenaline. It basically is a three-player minimum. I guess it has a two-player variant, but it's apparently not very good. Uh, so it's a three-player minimum board game recreation of a first-person shooter deathmatch. And, um, you know, while I know I tend to avoid games that have a lot of players fighting each other, I would certainly make an exception for this because of my own video game background, because it just seems so clever. I, and I love the whole idea of how it works. It's, yeah, I'm actually trying to shoot you, but that's almost immaterial. Often, you actually getting killed makes you more powerful instead of less powerful. Uh, it's just, really, it's not about me trying to kill you. It's I'm trying to shoot you because when you eventually die, whoever does it, whoever did the most damage, it's like an area control game where the areas we're trying to control are the bodies of each other as we're shooting each other. It seems so clever. I, I really look forward to giving it a try someday, along with um, Captain Sonar at some convention. But anyway, folks, that was a few games. Of some of them I've talked about in the past, but most of them you would never hear about on Rado Runs Through, but they were all games that came out in 2016 that I was really, really interested and keen on for various reasons. And now... I'm going to put it on hold for a second, then we're going to mic Jen up, and it'll be time for some Q&A. Hold on. Okay, folks, question and answer time. Jen is now upside down on the couch. <laughs> That's not really... I'm not upside down. Well, kind of. She just painted her toenails, and so <laughs> they have to be elevated, apparently, no, for I'm some just, reason. I'm just trying to keep them away from blankets and dogs and yep. whatnot. It's, it's, it's quite the sight. And right before I hit record, Jen said, Oh, this is the life. I could do podcasts all day. Yeah, I got a beagle under each arm. <laughs> yep. Laying here comfortably on the couch. It looks like this is the only time she gives herself the excuse to take it easy because the rest of the time she's always on the go. Oh. But anyway, honey pie, we're just going to sit back and talk and answer some questions. Are you ready, spaghetti? Yes, I will also be stroking some beagles. All righty. Let's see here. Then let's start with Carl, who says things. <laughs> Dead airtime. All right. More than once. More than once, I've heard you state you did not receive a finished copy of the game that you reviewed before the Kickstarter campaign. I realize that your business model, personal preference, has you not charging designers for these contributions to their efforts. This is nice for them, and it adds a bit of credibility to your videos. Could you not require, however, that upon the successful campaign, you are sent a final copy? Makes sense to me. Yeah, I could, but I don't. In all honesty, it's weird. Actually, I know some people don't like me doing Kickstarters or videos, but they're actually kind of my favorite in some ways. In other ways, they're not. One of the things is, hey, after we're done, we played the game a couple times. That was fun. And, oh, I've done a video for it now. And, yay, we don't have to find a way to fit it on the shelf. Yep, because one of the little-known perks of coming to see us in Malta is if you come and you see us, usually you leave with a prototype game. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. we pass them on once we've done the video yep yeah uh, i just i just don't have the room for it so if, if i actually did if i got a final version of every single game i did a run through for we'd need another flat exactly yes and we don't need another flat so it's 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 really no skin off my nose and yeah i, I just don't see the need to make it a requirement i mean if they do that's nice uh if they don't it's okay i got way too many games to play anyway also, Carl wonders, if I've ever recorded a top 10 concerning games that employ a physical puzzle or mechanism. He's talked with people that love these games and be interested in finding more. 
Um, examples would be Zolkin with the gears. I love Verano with the cube pyramid. Amerigo with the cube tower. Love the cube tower. If you have not, could we see one in the future? That's what I call gizmos. Yeah, yeah. Jen calls them gizmos or gadgets. Gadgets and gizmos. I love those kind of Um, things. But maybe there's not ten. He hasn't played Ohm, and that puzzle might qualify. Ohm is the one where you know there's the the three by three grid of tiles. They're all different actions, and you have a tile, and you push it in, and and you slide. Yeah, yeah. And that means you take a tile for a future turn, and you do those three things you just slid. Yep. Uh, Yeah, yeah. So yeah, top ten. Uh, mechanical puzzles where you know there, there is actual gizmo not, not gameplay mechanisms but real physical mechanisms the board moves the things change or tweak well obviously the first one pops into my head is forbidden desert which i mean we absolutely love that game for the same reason you know ulm is so great because the board itself is alive and moves yeah. and, you know following a set of rules yeah Are well there's there... for doesn't forbidden island also change then no, no, no. It's, it's, well. yeah, and Forbidden Island was just, that, that's a game to play with kids. I mean, it's great, it's great for families. I have actually played it with kids, and it, it works very well for that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not coming up with a, a lot. Did you play it with your other family? <laughs> uh, your other wife and children? <laughs> yep. Something like your, that. Your emergency backup beagles? <laughs> no, you're getting a little deep into this uh, <laughs> fantasy you're concocting here, honey pie. Yeah, I'm just no, wondering. I played with my mother and my niece, and that worked out very well. <laughs> but apparently, also knows my other I wasn't, family. I wasn't there, so I wouldn't know. Yeah, yeah. Other just raw physical mechanisms that are worked in to the game that aren't just putting cards on the table or rolling dice or something like that. I suppose the. Uh... Like Alchemy, that game where you had to use your phone. Well, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. I don't think that's those not what those... he means. Though. I mean, he means like you know, I, things, I understand. physical I'm, things. I'm just, I'm just thinking of other things that are used in the game that, yeah. and yeah. I think that uh, especially the Alchemy phone app was very handy for that. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I honestly, I'm, I, I'm probably a fool. There's probably plenty of them. Uh, and I'm, I'm just I'm just drawing a blank, but yeah, I think that kind of thing is the exception to the rule rather than the rule. I mean, gosh, there was Brussels 1893, which did kind of a cool thing. Where no, that's not really the same though. That's not the same. What's, yeah, what's uh, the this game? this would just be 15 minutes of me looking through every single game we have on the wall, and I honestly I I can't think of any. I'm sorry, honey, what were you asking? There's a game where you roll the dice and you have to put your dice in a little f- slot, and once your slots yeah. get full. What's that one? That's claustrophobia, I assume you mean? Probably. Yeah. I mean, that's a little bit of a It's something. Thing. Yeah, they, yeah, because you're putting dice into slots. It's, it's very, very satisfying. But no, I, I, think, I don't think there are that many that are what you're talking about. I don't know that I can come up with 10. Yep. Sorry, Carl. Let's move on to Carl's third question. No. Oh, he's a very efficient emailer. Oh, yes. He's, he's got a lot to say, a lot to ask. Uh, he realizes that... Everyone has different thinking and learning styles. They can affect what type of games you enjoy or don't enjoy. He himself has trouble with engine building games. They have huge amounts of cards and functions. I guess, uh, let's see. Or he has trouble with multi-use cards. That's another hurdle for him. What forms of gameplay or mechanisms, honey, do our brains just not process? And he asks for both me and you. I can answer for both of us. Neither of us are fans of memory. 
Um, I don't mind memory as much as you do, actually. I, yeah, I hate it. I absolutely abhor it. Whenever a game makes me do it, I'm like, it, it's just such a huge turnoff. And I mean, I can do it, but not very well. And I mean, it, it really requires a concerted effort on my part. You know, in my head, you know, just constantly repeating a mantra of this because I don't have a mind palace that I can go to and just put everything in their place. <laughs> um, but yeah, what what just doesn't grok? What do we not grok? I don't like things that have too many variables in them. Go on. Like we just played that one game, remember, just a couple days ago? They had too many variables. Yep, and I told you I didn't like it because of that. It was with the 6x6 grid. 6x6 grid. Oh, actually, no, sorry, that was something else. (laughs) Hold on. I might be getting something we played three days ago with something we played three years ago mixed yeah, up in her yeah, head. Yeah, you never know. I got a lot and, of other things and in here my comes mind. Daisy palace. climbing all over Jen's mic, it looks like. Nope, no, nope, she didn't. She's just switching position. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. Things that just don't jive well with us. I mean, there are certain types of gameplay we don't enjoy. We don't tend to enjoy. You know, I'll, I'll, people have heard it a million times conflict heavy games, and, uh, but. Okay, what are all those games where I have to constantly ask you like 70 times during the game? And now this does what? Because yeah, but, but I can't not, keep I mean, it straight because the, the, the rules are not consistently applied throughout the thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, that pops up every once in a while, but that's not a particular style of game. That's just more a case of a game that has a lot of stuff going on. Um, or, okay. and, you know, and it's usually a problem... The biggest problem Jen has grokking games is when I have a hard time explaining the rules to her in a thematic way. If I have to say, well, and you know, and the way this particular meter works is if you're the first person in, um, you get 2x, and if you're the last person in, you, you lose 2x, and that's just the way it is. It makes no sense, I, you know, as opposed to me actually trying to say, well, you have to understand, if you imagine that this whole thing is a gigantic steam engine, and it represents steam building up, that if you're the first person to go there to relieve the steam pressure, that means, you know, or whatever, if, if I can explain stuff like that, then it'll, it'll gel in Jen's brain. Yep. Um, and a game that doesn't is just... So I don't think we have, necessarily. I mean, Jen doesn't like the negotiation, but it's not that she can't negotiate. She just doesn't enjoy it. Yeah. I, I, we've played so many games now. I think we're actually pretty okay at getting games. Um, I mean, again, there are things that Jen doesn't like. She doesn't like games... Where you, uh, you know, where, where you don't do a lot on your turn, where you just make little baby steps. Oh my steps. gosh! But yes. it's not that she can't play them; no. she just doesn't find them engaging. I just, I want rewards. I want gratification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to see progress. Let's see, let me look at gone.rado.com and see if I've made a note of anything like that that we might have gotten rid of a game because it just wouldn't gel. Um, I mean, uh, Mage Knight was a game that was just—it was just a bridge too far. Too much stuff, too much complexity, but you know, but, but that had nothing to do with the actual the gameplay mechanism itself. The core game was really, really simple. It's just that it layered on a bajillion little special case rules you had to remember. Yeah, I think that's it. It's all the special case rules. Yeah, that just are. And, and that's show. just that's yeah, that's not a particular style of game. That's just a, a thing that any game could be guilty of. So no, I'm sorry, Carl. I think we're are we over three? <laughs> we failed at all of your questions. <laughs> oh. We probably shouldn't have led with Carl. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can only get better from here. Yep, yep, yep. Well, folks, let's see. Let's move on and see if Scott. Scott wants to know, honey, what are your 
Well, he wants a top 10. We're not going to do a top 10 on the spot. Your top 10 bugbears in game design. <laughs> what a coinkydink we were just kind of talking about. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Things that just drive us nuts about games. Game design. Well, number one would be a very poorly designed rule book because even though I don't have to read them. You've never read a game rule book ever. Well, I think I have, but well, nonetheless, even, even though I don't read them these days, um, I still have to be taught a game. And if you understand the game because it's been brilliantly written about, then it's so much easier for you to teach the game. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many games we sit there and our first game, it's an hour of just trying to get me oriented to what's going on because you have to keep going back to the rule book and say, oh no, well in this case, or no, well, hold on, let me just check. And, and, oh, you know, I, I'm, I think pretty patient about it, but it just, it, once again, yeah. if, if the rule book was written well, it would stick in your brain better as well. Sure, sure. And you've just read it. You always read the rule book right before we play. So it's mm-hmm. not like it was something you read last week. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've talked at length about problems with rule books and, you know, here's the things that rule books have to do and here's what 90% of them do wrong. I've done that on previous podcasts. So specific. I mean, the biggest one is always going to be just poor implementation of two-player rules. Um, you know, the most prevalent one being, oh, yeah, you want to play a two-player? Look, just play a four-player game, and each player has to control two players' worth of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that is by far. If I ever did a top ten of things that just drive me nuts about board game design, that's, that is that is such a cardinal sin. Just don't just make it a three-player minimum. Just don't do that. Don't do that. What was it? Uh, Yunnan was a wonderful game, and it's I think a little bit of work they could have really made that a great two-player game. Instead, they just you know they just left out. Um, I mean, there's certain genres we don't like. We tend not to like pick up and deliver. Yeah, I don't know. We don't like whale killing ones. We don't like whale killing games. <laughs> we, we vehemently oppose those. Um, yeah, I don't know that I would have a full top ten. Of just of, of of things that get under our skin. I mean, we tend to like games more often than not. Yeah. So, uh, Scott's next question is: Quadropolis, a sandbox game, and doesn't have enough variability. Quadropolis is a game we just did live a couple of weeks ago. You oh. know, the, you take your architect; he's a three. That means you put him. Oh yes. And you take the third one over, and then you have to put him in row or column three. Yep, yep, yep. A honey pie. Um, do you think that game has enough variability? Oh, I don't know. I don't think I'd want to play it every week for a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I would enjoy it enough to come back to it five or six times in a year. All right, there you go, folks. There you go, Scott. Uh, is it a sandbox game? No, but I think, Scott, you must have a different definition of sandbox game than, than, than me. And that's something I've talked about at great length, too. I mean, yeah. So, Honey Pie, Scott wants to know directly from you. Jen, what's the big deal about Roll for the Galaxy? Oh, I love it. It's yeah. awesome. It's a great game. Um, there's, it's fast. Uh, you can make great strides. It's also very flexible. Um, yeah, you feel like you're constantly moving forward. You can build up a, a civilization that actually has a little story behind it. You have some clue of what direction to go in based upon your starting um, civilization cards. Uh, but the only thing I don't like about Roll for the Galaxy is the noise that the dice make, but <laughs> I will put up with it. All right. There you go, Scott. Because he further asks, I mean, it, it, it seems too expensive. 80 bucks used in Australia. $80? $80. I guess it's hard to get um, down under. 
Is it that expensive everywhere else in the world? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's it's, it's they have a, it comes with a ton of custom dice. So I'm sure yeah. that, those that dice you know really that's pretty. what raises its price above your average game because you know those mm-hmm. dice ain't cheap. Yeah. But would you say it's worth eighty dollars used? I, I mean, think we, it, we we have played that game probably. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. If we had had to pay. Well, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know what the scale of $80 Australian versus U.S. is. Yeah, I'm not sure either at the moment. To the Google. Yeah. 80 uh, AUS to USD. Yep. Here we go, honey pie. Mm. Do you think uh, 60 bucks? Definitely worth it. Definitely worth 60 U.S. dollars. Yep. Used. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's not like you've got, you know, um, thingies that have gotten worn like card edges or whatever. They're just dice. Yeah, well, no, I guess... But those cardboard thingies are pretty sturdy. Yep. I think it'd be all right. Yep. All righty. There you go, Scott. You didn't ask me, so let's move on to... <laughs> he doesn't care what you think. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't care what I think. <laughs> Jan wants to know a whole bunch of questions. Is it E-I-A-N? It's Y-A-N. So I'm oh, assuming okay. it's Jan. Okay. Although, Yan? Maybe Yan. Yan uh, asks, do we ever print out print and play games? No, uh, we never do. Uh, the only time I've ever done a run-through of a print-and-play game was when uh, somebody actually gave me a copy of their print-and-play game. We have not the greatest HP desk jet that Inkjet just printer. does not reliably print anything worth a damn. And yeah. somehow, it just seems to go through toner in very <laughs> strange and unpredictable ways. And it's just it's just not worth the work. It's... Um, and so if you do, do we have... Yeah, so I don't have any recommendations about how to do print and play. It's just, they're, they're, we have too many games as it is. I mean, yeah. the, the work to get even more games, that's, that's just kind of unthinkable. Well, there is a print shop in uh, Victoria, which is our, the main city on the island that we live on, that, that can print out color, nice color, yeah. you know, like a laser color printer stuff. But even so, you've still got to, um, you know, sort out the cutting and the slicing and the whatever. Yep. Man, the laminating. Yeah. <laughs> Question number two from Yan. Back in the 80s, we had paper magazines to help us keep up with video games and to learn about games um, and RPGs and all. Nowadays, the number of games coming out every month is overwhelming. What would you suggest to a humble player to keep up with it? I mean, yeah, following all the stuff you put out is one way, uh, but it certainly is only a partial view. That's certainly true. People cannot rely on me to have a full view. I mean, they're missing out if they only pay attention to me. Yeah. So what are some complimentary readings to rattle runs through? I was going to say you should marry my husband, but I've already (laughs) done that, so alas. Yeah, I would say the two, uh, by far, the number one best thing you can do, if you haven't already done it, is go on BoardGameGeek and make an account for yourself. And then find on the front page of Board Game Geek, over on the top left, I think, is where the Board Game News is. Subscribe to Board Game Geek's Board Game News. Eric Martin, just uh, is it's his full-time job. It's his full-time job to research and find out and go to conventions all around the world about every new game that's coming out that's interesting. And he puts out two or three news posts a week. Uh, if he can, he has pictures. Um, but it's great. I mean, I cannot strongly recommend subscribing to on Board Game Geek the you know the Board Game Geek news. Uh, it's actually Dice Tower does a very nice one as well. But it's no, I mean, nothing is as thorough and as complete and as all encompassing as as Eric's. So that, if you do that, I think you're going to be covered. Now, if you want to do what I do, although I would not recommend this at home, you can. There is an RSS feed. 
um, that Board Game Geek has that you can subscribe to using whatever RSS breeder, breeder RSS reader that you you prefer. I just use Outlook, and um, it will notify you of every single game that gets added to the Board Game Geek user database, and that is what I do. I probably spend maybe three hours a week, four hours a week, just checking that feed out and reading about every single game because that way you will know about every game in existence. It is from that that RSS feed that I make my own Games of Interest Geek List. But if you wanted to and you had the time and the inclination, you could certainly do that. But I wouldn't recommend it because it's madness. Madness! But yeah, the, the Board Game Geek news thread, just or not thread, the, the blog. It's a blog. You can subscribe to that blog. You'll, you'll, you'll know about 99% of everything you ever need. Alrighty. What improvements would you like to see in Board Game Geeks uh, as a website and as a community? I know you've mentioned more flexibility with games list. I'm all for that too. Uh, at this point, the main thing I just want to see is apply the rest of that, the, you know, the revamp they did to the rest of the site. You know, I don't. I, it's hard for me to answer because I'm just so used to Board Game Geek. I, I know all the ways around it. Um, I know uh, the number one thing I would like to see is more subscriber information. Uh, right now, uh, you know, I, I know Board Game Geek knows it, but they do not indicate how many people subscribe to Geekless or how many people subscribe to th- uh, Threads or how many people subscribe to videos. I would love to see that. Um, you know, I, mean, I think that would be um, an interesting hotness meter. Um, you know, instead, you, you can see how many people thumb things. But, yeah, I mean, thumbing is one thing. Actually subscribing to something, that's a real indicator that that's something people are interested in. And I don't understand why that information is effectively kept secret. I would definitely like to see that. Uh, Jen, she wouldn't know because I don't think you've ever been on the site more than two or three times for anything other than just looking at threads on BoardGameGeek. Or not on BoardGameGeek, on, on the Rotto Runs Through thread. Mm, yeah. Um, I, one thing I know I'd love is, I, as a runner of a guild, I would love to be able to create invite-only threads that aren't seen by um, you know people. I, I would absolutely <laughs> love to do that. The same way you can create invite-only forums on Facebook. I would love, 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 love that so much. But yeah, I don't really have a lot of complaints about it. I just like to see it. Um, the you know the the rest of the revamp spread throughout, and, I'm, and I know they're working on it. Do, uh, you mentioned an upcoming virtual reality board game. Can you tell us more? Is it Lost Cities? For Lost Cities is getting a virtual reality implementation? No. I think it's Mask of Moai, which is a sequel to Mask of Anubis, which you can see the run-through we did for that. Remember, that was the one where the little guy ran around in the maze? Yep. Um, it's, it's a more updated version of that now in Mask of Moai. I've actually got it. I've got the mask. We haven't played it yet. It hasn't gotten enough votes. But now when you're in there looking around, another thing you have to do is you have to jump. Because the rooms are two levels, and so if you <laughs> want to see where the pla- the uh, what's up there, you literally have to physically jump, and then your view inside the thing pops up, and you can see what's higher. Wow! I think that'd be very very cool. Mm. And the rooms are are hexagons now; they're not square, so it's a bit more complex, right? And I think maybe you duck down because you go underwater, and so there's like you know, so it, they mm. did they did done a lot more with it. I'm very very cool, keen on trying it out, but it looks like it's not getting the votes because people just don't want to see it for I whatever reason. I guess that could be one of the um, gadget games. Yeah, but again, yeah, it's another use of apps and games. That's a good point. Yeah, the, the Mask of Anubis and upcoming Mask of Moai. Dear Jen, oh. amongst your glass creations, have you considered or already done some replacement parts for board games? 
other than you know individual pawns, first player markers. Yeah. Have you actually done game themed groups? Uh, the answer to that is yes, Jan. Yes, it is. Yes, the answer is yes. Um, pandemic is the easiest one to point to because I've got viruses and operative markers for that. Um, but basically, I guess it usually happens that somebody emails me and asks, hey, can you do this or that for this game? And I figure it out and do it. Yeah. But I can't obviously make stuff just, you know, in yeah, my I, spare time that goes for every game. Everyone you've done, it's because somebody said, yeah. we love this game so much, we really want to pimp it out. Can you yeah. come up with something interesting? Like just the other day, you did a new set for Santorini. Yes. Uh, which fun. you're very, very keen oh, on. Oh, it was so nice and summery for And me. you've done, you know, sets for, you know, like specific color-coordinated sets. You did one for, and then we held hands. Oh, yes. And, um, uh... Gosh. What other ones? God, it feels like I've done about a billion of them. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, the, uh, Underground Railroad, of course. Oh. Yep, yep. That Green was the one of the Railroad. first ones, yep. Um, golly... Yeah, so you've, you've done it a bunch of times. And if people want, they can find out more by going to www.jenefer.net. And, uh, yeah, and, and like I said, if you have a favorite game, just contact Jen. She does commission work like that all the time. Yeah, actually, I just had a request about some scythe markers. Some scythe markers? Yeah. Ooh, there's a lot of markers in that game. I don't even know what that would be. Did they say what they wanted them for? Did they want a replacement for the mechs? I think what, they, what he wants is a, um, one of each of the seven colors, yes. a pawn-shaped one, and then he wants heart-shaped ones as well, oh. the same colors. Hmm. So, yeah, I just was working on heart ones yesterday ah, to see right. if that would work. How do you feel about storytelling in board games? I'm personally under the impression that there's been a lot of focus and innovation towards mechanisms, but keeping stories in the games is both tough and not getting as much focus. Gloomhaven is a counterexample to this, and Aeon End is typical of it for me. Great game, little to no story. Um, let's see, and a sub-question, how would you like story to be added to Aeon's End? Aeon's End, I don't know if you remember it, it's the, it's the deck builder where it's, it's a fantasy, there's big bad guys, they have like 50 hit points and we have to slowly work them down, but when we, you know, you build your deck, but when you play a spell to cast it, you put it on the rift, and then it takes a couple of rounds for it charges up before you... Hmm, you'd think I'd remember the Rift. That yeah. sounds pretty cool. We have not played it for many, many months. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a fantasy deck builder hmm. where the, the, story, the story in Aeon's End is there, but it's not a story that the designer has set out to actually tell the players. The story is one that grows out of the experiences players had. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, and I think that is a very meaningful... It, it can be a meaningful storytelling element. But yeah, no, I think... There are interesting, you know, twists. Uh, I mean, I, I just, the other week, I put up the run-through, the talk-through for, what's it called? I should really research these before I film them. <laughs> um, oh, my goods, Revolt in Longsdale, which is a, you can see the run-through I did for that, Jan. Yeah, it's phenomenal, and it's a great example of how you can integrate story into a Euro-style gameplay and, you know, and honestly, I, would, I hope every single Euro board game designer on the market looks at that and realizes, yeah, when we do expansions, we don't just have to give you four modules you turn on or off. We can actually tell a story that you can play through multiple sessions. I, I think that kind of stuff is phenomenal. And I think, given time, you'll see more and more of that coming in the future. Have you ever seen board games that can be considered like sandbox video games? Uh, defining a world in which players can actually do more than the designer ever thought of himself. 
Well, yeah, I mean, that happens all the time. I mean, Magic the Gathering. I'm sure that once players start working on it, they start coming up with interesting, cool combos between cards that Richard Garfield never would have thought of in a million years. Yep. You know, a good game does that. Yeah, lots of good games do that. I don't think that's even necessarily all that uncommon. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you can, you can find quite a few games out there where unexpected combinations of existing elements can lead to surprising results. Lastly, some top 10 suggestions. Oh, you just said some top 10 suggestions. Uh, games that surprise this. Right, but I'll add those to the list later. Okay, let's move on to Michael, mm-hmm. who wants to know if we'd ever considered doing a top 100 or even a top 50 games. We were considering What do you know? We did consider that. If you (laughs) followed us just a few weeks ago, that was going to be our, was it the fourth stretch goal? I think so. And we fell short of it by a couple grand. So maybe next year. Yeah. Yeah. It was going to be a lot of work. Honestly, Michael, all you got to do is go to either ranked.rado.com or games.rado.com and you can see my top 300. But if you actually want to hear us talk about them, well, that would mean a series of videos and the thing is, it would be so, so, so much work for Jen. I mean, she would have to basically spend... I wouldn't be surprised at all if it would take... Well, it would probably take upwards of 10 hours for you just to get reacquainted. Because you have to get every single one of these games in your head. Yep. So you can start ranking them relative to each other. Mm-hmm. Then you got to go through the ranking process. And then, I mean, that would probably be a 15-hour long video series. Because it would be 10 videos of 10 apiece, the two of us sitting down talking about them. That would be the biggest project we ever took on. Which is why we were willing to do it if we hit that stretch goal. But we didn't. So we're not going to. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Let's see. And if so, would you invite other folks to be involved? Oh! Oh, actually, I just kind of read between the lines. Well, yes, my assumption was I would invite Jen. But Coach Gray, I could do a top 100 in, you know, with my eyes closed any day of the week. That'd be easy peasy. And could I do it like uh, how I did the uh, crossover with No Pun Included or how I had um, fresh cardboard for Terraforming Mars or how I did my top 10 solos with Board Game Brawl? Yeah, I could do that stuff. The problem is trying to coordinate with other board game reviewers, it's so problematic. I mean, if they come here and visit me physically like uh, No Pun Included did, yeah, of course, I'll do something. Um, you know, and it was great when I was in Florida and I visited Tom and I did two top tens with him, you know, on the dice tower. But yeah, I mean, generally it's, it's tough to pull that kind of stuff together because we're just in a not very compatible time zone with most of my contemporaries. Joshua wonders, let's see, or nope. Okay. He admittedly rambles a bit at first and then gets to his first (laughs) gaming question. What do you think? Don't worry, Joshua. I will read this later. I mean, all your words will not be lost in vain. But right now, I'm just cutting right to the questions. What do you think... Oh, yeah, okay. So the majority of games that he's been enjoying lately are derivatives of older games. Imperial Assault, Pandemic Iberia, Star Trek Frontiers. He respects my opinion and is glad to take... uh, Glad that I take the position um, that my opinion is just an opinion. Ah, all right. Ah, too much to read. Okay. So anyway, he's talking about re-themes of games. What do I think about theme-changing process? Does it take more or less creativity? Is it a money grab or an expansion on systems people like? How do you see it, and do you like it or not? I love it! I mean, heck, I just talked about it in uh, the top ten. Just actually, I, just, I mean, there were several games like uh, you know, changing Castle Panic into Star Trek Panic. I think it's phenomenal. Certainly, oh, it, 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 you know, it, it makes me cry a little bit. It breaks my soul a little bit every time I see somebody complaining online about this is a clear cash grab. 
oh, these money-grumming so-and-sos just trying to, you know, focus on the game. You know, I don't get that. So much negativity. So much cynicism. I, you know, you know, I bet you anything, just to pick one at random, because I just talked about it a little bit ago, they must have had so much fun taking their baby, Castle Panic, you know, their pride and joy. They've done several expansions for it. And I bet you anything, they love Star Trek. And it must have been such a blast for them to write, how can we make this work with Star Trek? What does Star Trek add to our formula? How does it change things? I, you know, I, I bet you it, it was so much fun. And then, of course, it's a big deal for them, too, because I, I'm, I'm sure it sold for them hugely because it's got the Star Trek name. I think... It's done with a sense of fun and adventure and creativity. Because, yes, it is a very, very uh, an interesting, creative challenge. And I love it. Every time I see that happen, I think it's great. Um, and like I said, I feel sad for people who are just cynics at heart and look at everything as, you know, as sour pushes. Uh, it makes me sad to even think about those four folks. So I think it's great. I want to see more of it. Um, you know, because, hey, maybe it's a great game and people just don't like it because of the theme. Like Predator, and so they're going to retheme it as a video game development game. I think that's phenomenal. Hey, more people get to experience the great gameplay if they'd been turned off by one set of uh, uh, gameplay settings. Righty. Uh, Josh has been gaming for five or six years and has not fallen into the Euro or Ameristyle game camp. Is this really a thing? Are there categories that most people fall into? Isn't there a third category um, that's a shorthand for people to specify a wide open interest in board game types? Yes, that third is called an Omni-Gamer. Joshua, you are an Omni-Gamer, and good on you, mate. But no, Eurotrash, or no, sorry, uh, Ameritrash and uh, Eurobore, which was the full name, and it just got shortened to Euro. That is totally a thing. It, it, it is definitely a style of game. And yes, there's plenty of hybrids, there's plenty of crossover, but there's no choice about it. There are games that people, some people will love, and Jen and I will hate, and Jen and I will love, and some people will hate. Um, it is the way it is. There's no way we are going to be able to find ourselves enjoying these big, sprawling, narrative-led things. We like complex puzzles to solve and um you know and we actually like dry themes where we are middle managers i mean we actually enjoy this sure we love fantasy too but um yeah it it is totally a thing you are an omni gamer congratulations but the main part of the second question how when did we decide the types of games that we like did we start open and narrow down or have we maintained a similar interest and types of games throughout our board game hobby career Actually, that question has been answered in my first... I did a top 10 that was my first 10 games. And then I did a follow-up to that in last month's or the month prior's podcast, which covered like the next 25 games. And that is a story of the evolution of Jen's and my gaming tastes. We came in not knowing what those terms were, and we came out of that process knowing that we are Eurofans through and through. And so, if you'd like, you can, you can follow that story. Follow our heroes. Now, moving on to Scott. Honey Pie, what is your favorite feeling elicited by a game? Satisfaction. <laughs> you might as well just said good vibes. He mentions things like tension, brain burning, success as a strategy falls into place. Okay, well, success as a strategy falls into place. That's satisfaction. Okay. You want to elaborate on that at all? Oh, uh, no, I just love it when the 
I set up an engine and it runs beautifully. Right. That is very satisfying. Mm-hmm. That is my my reward. Yes. Um, I would certainly say, I, I think I talked about this when I did our top 10 engine building games. That, that is probably one of our, no, actually I did, our, I did a top 10 gameplay mechanisms. And I talked about it then, that you know, engine building is, is immensely satisfying. Both Jen and I, more than anything else, I think, you know, and she's mentioning it specifically in relation to engine building, but there are other games as well. We really like building things. Yeah. We like creating something, and then after it's done, sitting back and basking in the sense of accomplishment that <laughs> what we made is good. Yes. Uh, look at it. We have helped Isn't this civilization do something. Yeah, whether it's a civilization or a business or whatever it might be. Yep. Or, or just a really good deck of cards that last, last couple of rounds, man, that deck just just purred. Yep. Um, yeah, and the sense of satisfaction comes out of that. Uh, I often find myself another thing I very much enjoy, and it isn't it's not very often, but I was reminded of it when we were doing that live playthrough of Quadropolis. Someday I'll do a top ten um oh what do I call it? Not toe tapping, but games where I just can't wait to take my next turn because I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. I, I can't wait to see how well it works because I come up with a plan, I know this is gonna be great, it's gonna be awesome. I can't wait. Oh please don't let it get destroyed. Please let everything I, I really, really like that too. It's kind of an offshoot. But um uh yeah, I really, really like that. And uh, yeah, and we also really like games so, uh, puzzle solving. Uh, you know, which is slightly different than what you're talking about. You know, Agricola is the perfect example. Agricola, we have all these cards. How can we make them work? Mm-hmm. Because we, we, these cards are a restriction that we have to work within. The, the board and the, the requirements that we, we know we have to do certain things within a certain time frame. Yep. Figuring out how to do that. Again, it comes down to, oh, we just really like the satisfaction of doing it. But that's not building something. That is solving a puzzle. Making something work. Pulling all these tendrils together. Working within these constraints and coming up with a solution that just ticks all the box and scores a lot of points. Yeah. That's, always, that's good. Yeah. Alrighty, and then he's got a very long story about Istanbul because he mentions when I did my Istanbul run through, I think oh. I mentioned in passing, hey folks, prove me wrong. And Scott has written a long treatise on proving me wrong <laughs> about Istanbul and my final thoughts. Scott, that's great. Actually, there is an entire, if you go on to Board Game Geek in the Istanbul forum, there's a full thread on this topic that it must be six or seven pages long. That would be the place to post this. Although if you do, that'll just wake that topic back up again. Um, I'll look at this later, but at this point, as I said in the run-through, and as I've said on that thread a few times, I'll take everybody's word that I'm wrong on it. Um, Okay. Chris wonders, because he's always paying attention to my final thoughts, and when I mention games that are Gateway or Gateway Plus, like recently that Cytosis game, you know, the... The Inner Workings of a Human Cell. Yeah. And Via Nebula, the road building by clearing out clouds. And for a while, he agreed with my assessments. However, as he expands with who he plays with, many of the games that we that I've said that we consider gateway, including classics like Stone Age or Rise of Augustus, can completely overwhelm people. Have we become jaded, perhaps, and need to reevaluate our de- definition of gateway? I don't think jaded is the right word there. But um, um, short-sighted? I mean, that we are out of sync? The, the fact of the matter is, we are hardcore gamers. And something that might seem simple to us, uh, and we go, oh, well, yeah, of course, this would be a great gateway. Any gra- anybody's grandma could play this. <laughs> I don't know that I... 
I actually, I think there is a real danger, you're right there, uh, in mentioning it. One thing you got to bear in mind, anytime I ever say this would be a great gateway or maybe a great way plus, I assume my, I am talking to an audience of diehard board gamers who are already playing the games. And when I say this would be a great gateway, there is an implicit provided that there is a hardcore geek who is going to be there to teach it to their spouse or their mom or their kids or their coworkers. It's a whole different thing to say a gateway that somebody could just pick up on their own having never played games before and write, I'm going to read this rule book and figure it out. Yeah. And I don't yeah. know that there's a lot of games out there. That there are. Them. There are. Are there? But um, you know, when I did that top 10 gateway games, because uh, you know, a million years ago, like three yeah. or four years ago, I actually did that. I was actually thinking in terms of how hard is this rule book to read? Uh, um, you know, and, and how compulsive is it that, okay, even if you struggle a little bit, it, but you know, just what you do get seems to be compelling enough that you would want to go back and try again and, and, and pulled in deeper. That's a different thing. Um, when I talk about gateway, and yeah, this is kind of like maybe even a little too gateway-ish for us. I'm talking about, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Rise of Augustus. Yeah, Rise of Augustus, I would never give that. Rise of Augustus, honey pie. Uh, we played it with, oh, what are their names? I don't remember their names. Your um, your in-laws from from Cheney. Yeah. They came and visited. Janice. Janice and my her aunt. friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember, and we were we played uh, and we played some gateway games with them. Yeah, my uh, in-law is your mom, so. Yeah, yeah, very, <laughs> I, I can't remember. Doesn't I, matter. Yeah, yeah. Janice and her friend, they were visiting, and they, they swung by, and we played some games with them, and we played Rise of Augustus. Rise of Augustus is a bingo game. It's the remember you have your cards and you're doing bingo, and I thought yeah, this would be a good one to play mm. with them. Yep. They loved it. They had never played a game before. And I think Rise of Augustus is a game that you can teach to anybody if you do it the right way. But I don't think that if Janice and her friend, who I'm sorry, I don't remember her name, had gone out and bought the game themselves, I I, I think the game might have been a bit on the hairy edge and it might have been a bit too much because it does throw a lot at you. But the thing is, when I taught it to them, I was able... To uh, you know, kind of focus them. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, because you know, there, there's uh, there's there's no secret information. Everybody can see what everybody else has. When somebody eventually has to make a choice about, right? Okay, I finished this card. I need to take another card now. Oh my God, there's six cards. How am I supposed to choose? I can help them with that. Yeah. And so it was a good gateway under those circumstances. And I can see how if they just had to figure it all out themselves, it might be a bit too much. So when I say gateway, I'm talking about gateway with a really good teacher. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong when I do that. But the thing is, I'm assuming very few people who don't know anything about board games and have never played a modern designer board game or decided, hey, let's watch this Rotto Runs Through show. Mm-hmm. That'll probably work. Um, I, I don't think there's, many, there's much danger of that. But you're, it is a fair point. When I say gateway, you got to take that caveat. Gateway plus good teacher. If I was talking about pure gateways, I'd be talking about a whole different level yeah. of light, light, light. So light for us that we could barely even stand to sit down at the table because we'd be snooze festing. <laughs> um, right. We might be enjoying the art of yeah. the game. I really do need to do an update to that top 10 because half of that list is now games that are out of print. Um, but anyway. Moving on, honey. To the, you know Actually, I'm thirsty. Let's move on to the personal questions in just a few minutes. Because obviously a lot of people don't want the personal. We've talked about games for a while now. And if you're bowing out, folks, thanks for listening. Have a very nice day. Talk to you later so long. Bye-bye. And when we come back, we're going to get to some personal Q&As. Carl will return, as will Joshua and Priscilla. We'll be back um, once again to grill Jen about God knows what. <laughs> 
We'll be right back, folks. <laughs> Okay, folks, now it's the personal Q&A section, or what I like to call the Jen portion of the show. <laughs> uh, she doesn't have much to say about games, but she's got a lot to say about other things, and people do tend to ask questions. So let's get going with Carl. Carl is back. Carl, hopefully we will not fail you. I know we gave you some wishy-washy opening answers to your questions, because they were, and they definitely deserve better, Carl. But Carl has some personal questions, honey pie, starting with, what breed of chicken do we have? Oh, is Malta your first experience raising them? Uh, there must be many benefits to this effort in many areas. However, thinking only economically, do you find it worthwhile as far as your total expense in comparison to yields? And finally, <laughs> do the dogs chase them? Okay. I need that in bite-sized pieces. All righty. What type I... breed do we have? Okay. They're called Isa Browns. You said Isa? I-S-A Browns. It's oh. a breed specifically created, I think, during World War II to... Um, basically make a hybridized hen that lays an egg every day basically for her for her first year of life mm-hmm. um and there's a, there's a couple other names for the same type of thing but they're they're your standard red hen uh, if you're working in like the commercial egg industry they'll all be those kinds of hens because they lay an egg every day um for the first year of their life and actually i found that they lay a lot their second year as well so they're really good hens Alrighty, Very is Malta productive. your first experience raising them? No, we had chickens in England as well, and my first flock actually. I think. Yeah, what is it? What what how, what flock are you on now? I think I'm going to call that number. Uh, We're on flock number four. four? I yeah, think that's four. That was my gut. All right, so your yeah. first flock. I mean, some, there's been a bit of crossover with flocks, but as my first flock, I actually got uh, one kind of chicken from several different places, and uh, that you was mean a, seven different breeds. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I had different colors of eggs. I had different colors of chickens. And it was just such a beautiful flock. And, oh, my gosh, I loved having all seven different color of eggs. It was fantastic. I just oh, yep. loved it. Green eggs, blue eggs, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. whites, browns, kind of olivey colored, peaches, pink ones. It was wonderful. Um, but the problem with that is that chickens, of course, have a hierarchy, and every time you introduce a new chicken into the flock, she gets the crap pecked out of her. Poor thing, because they've all got to figure out the new pecking order, um, and it's just not a very friendly way to live. But what difference does that I mean, if you'd gotten them all at the same time, that, would that have been more of an issue than if you'd gotten all... Are, are you saying chickens are racist, basically? No, I'm saying that they are tribal. Right, but are, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Are you saying... That if you get a bunch of different types of chickens all at the same time and put them in the pen, there will be more of a fracas than there would be if you got all of the same breed? Uh, actually, I, I do believe that there would be. Because okay. chickens can definitely tell the difference between, say, a red chicken and a black chicken or a white chicken or a spotted chicken. Or so whatever. you're saying chickens are racist? I'm specious. I, I am saying that they like the chickens that look more like themselves than they like ones that don't look like themselves. All right. At least initially. Okay. At least initially. All right. But if I had, if I, so instead of getting, say, three chickens from one place and one chicken from another place and two chickens from another place, if I had just all on one day gone to seven different chicken places and picked up seven hens and put them in the, the yard, you know, they would have figured it out and that would have been, they would have figured well, out. So you're saying it doesn't matter what the breed is. No, but I'm saying what I did is I went and got three chickens from one place. Then I went and got two chickens from another place. Then I got a chicken from one other place and another oh, chicken I from see. another place. And I kept introducing them over the course of like two weeks. And this was very stressful for the whole group. Newbie mistake. Yep. Very newbie mistake. Yep. 
They've only got little tiny bird brains. <laughs> so, um, okay. Right. And that was in England. Yeah. And like I said, you're on your fourth flock now. Yeah. The first flock. Unfortunately, because I did that, they... They um, never really... They never acclimated. quite gelled. They, and, they, they were kind of a schizophrenic block. Yeah. And um, also, it's another newbie mistake. I had bought a coop that said, oh, can hit six, can hold six adult hens. Well, no. <laughs> no, it was, t- it was about the right size for two adult hens. And so they were just confined in much too small an area. And then, you know, over the course of the first month or two, I figured out oh, this is definitely a problem and got them, you know, bigger accommodations and a bigger run and and you know i fixed my problems but you know they but this, this was the group that they just never stopped pecking and they basically yeah. just they were all walking around bald bald because they, they would pull each other's feathers they, out. they became cannibals and they ate each other's feathers all the time yep and no matter what you did you tried a million different things yep. they just would not stop doing it and eventually our first flock was also our first slaughtered flock yep and we, they were delicious they weren't good, actually, because we actually we slaughtered them kind of young because they, they had such crappy lives. They were just constantly henpecked. Yeah. Well, I mean, you did your best for them. I mean, you, ultimately, they had a really big space. They had lots of room. But they, oh, yeah. they had just gotten into this weird... And, you, I mean, you, Fe- could not, you just habit. could not stop them. They just become this weird psychosis that had spread through the flock. I wouldn't say psychosis. They just decided that they liked the taste of freshly plucked feathers mm-hmm. and yeah. or maybe the dominant behavior. I don't know. But anyway, so yeah, at about a year old, probably, or after, after the first year, mm-hmm. when I just figured I would, you know, I'd sprayed them with stuff. I'd, oh, just, I'd Those gotten weird them little blockers. I've gotten like little blinders for them. I got these hen saddles that covered their, their bare backs so that they weren't getting, actually, their skin wasn't getting pecked. I mean, oh, it was just, it was just really sad. And, you know, to live in a constant state of somebody going to peck you, it just was a very stressful life for them, unfortunately. So, Anyway, we had a neighbor who came over and did the deed for us, and I took the day off and went to Brighton. <laughs> and and he got them all packaged up and put yeah. in the freezer for me. That was really nice of yeah, him. Yeah, I, I stayed and assisted, but I was not directly involved. So that was the first flock. Yep. Second flock, you learned a lot. You got yep. them all as one group. Yep. They were actually gelling really well until the fox got them. And then the fox killed them all in yep. one fell And that swoop. was devastating. To that go was down the and... day before you were moving to Malta. Yes. <laughs> and so that led to... So it's not four flocks, because that led to... Full-on panic mode, because Jen was going to be still in England for like two or three months cleaning up our affairs. Yep. And um, you know, the day before I was getting on the plane, we had, whatever it was, six or seven dead chickens. Yep. And um, so we had to deal with that. Because it was weird. The fox killed them all immediately. First, it just got in there, hunt them all, kill them all. Then, um, I guess, was gonna, it was intending to just like slowly take them all away to its den or whatever. Mm. But then you got scared off. And, um, you know, so the, the fox was just incredibly inefficient. Well, they or, just... I guess incredibly efficient from the fox's perspective. Yeah, they're opportunists, so... Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that was a wipeout. And so, and so, Jim was kind of upset about that. And <laughs> why exactly that very same day did we get a bunch more chickens? We got... And, we, and this time... We went to another place, and you got, like, reject chickens? No, I got re- I rehomed chickens from yeah. um, the chicken industry. Uh, there's something called the Hen Welfare Trust in England, and they will rehome um, chickens that have spent their first life in battery cages, basically laying their one egg a day. And after the first year, the industry doesn't want them anymore because they might only lay five eggs a week instead of seven a week, and so they generally kill them, and they go into uh, dog food or whatever you see chicken byproducts 
as a, you know, a, a thing. Um, so anyway, there's, like I said, the, the Hen Welfare Trust in England, and they go and rescue these chickens, and then they just rehome them to anybody who wants them. And uh, so we got three of those to tide me over, and they were so happy you know, to have... They, of course, they had this huge, lovely um, place to live. For the first time in their life, because they had, like, like, gnarled up feet and stuff like that, because they Yeah, been in... and they were, you know, somewhat featherless as well because it's very stressful to live in a one foot by one foot by one foot cage which at the time that was what the the law said you had to give and now it's gotten better i think they get to live in double that amount of space in the uk yeah but it's still not great i mean you really should try and buy free range eggs because the life that these chickens live in a in a cage is awful yeah, but free range, my understanding is, is not that's not an official term, so they can say free range. Yeah, I mean, living in a barn might this sound This has become nice. the chicken podcast. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. I mean, but living in a barn might not be any better. Outdoor, free range. If you yep. can go see them on the farm, that's even the best. Or have your own. So, I mean, it's really not that big a deal to have a chicken or two. Yeah. So anyway, ultimately you had those three. They were nice. And then what did mm-hmm. you do with them? You Actually, gave them to neighbors, didn't you? No, our, oh, our no, first right. tenant our, took our them tenants. On. Said, oh, that's really awesome. We'd love chickens. Yeah. And then we came back a year later and they were all gone. Well, apparently the fox had come back and gotten one. Uh And then another one had just died of natural causes. And so she gave the last one away to, I don't know who, someone. Right. And now in England, we're on our second full set. Yeah. Because you had one set. We've had them and, you know, we've had them for two years and they got to the point where they weren't laying. And so Jen and I have taken it upon ourselves to learn how to. Yep. Um, Do the deed. Yeah. Slaughter and then dress the chickens and all of that. So we've done that now. I don't know. Four or five or six times, I guess. Yeah, because we and didn't do a mass call. We would just take one chicken. Exactly, yeah, when it, when it was no longer producing. And uh, we now have our, so I guess, is that the sixth? No, that we're on the fifth flock then. I, I guess. guess so, yeah, yeah. Yep. But anyway, last question about chickens, oh, I promise, folks. Chicken. Because Carl wants to know, honey, thinking about it economically, do you find it worthwhile as far as your total expense in comparison to yield? Okay, I can tell you that I did the numbers when we were living in England. Yes. And our second flock... I had 10 chickens, mm-hmm. and I sold the eggs. I mean, essentially, we were going sold through... Sold the eggs? Yes. To who? Neighbors. They oh. loved having our, our eggs because okay. you know, they were outside chickens and eating bugs and stuff all day and getting good food. Yeah. Um, anyway, lots of weeds. Uh, anyway, yes. So my, for the economics for us, we go through six eggs a day ourselves. Yeah. Um, and so th- with chickens each laying about an egg, egg a day that gave me an extra four eggs a day. And so I would sell a couple uh, dozen eggs on to the neighbors every week. And that amount of egg selling actually paid entirely for everybody's food. They were completely the, the 10, the 10 chickens food. Now there was some other expenses like the fencing and the coop that I bought and, you know, I don't know, chicken decor that I wouldn't really consider um, as part of your your costs of owning chickens because you're going to have that regardless of if you sell eggs or you don't. And if you're looking at spending a couple hundred bucks on a coop and a couple hundred bucks on electric fencing and whatever, it's going to take an awfully long time at, you know, a buck uh, for half a dozen of eggs to pay that expense back. But what you, I think what you look at is, you know what your chickens are eating. Therefore, you know what you're eating when you eat the eggs. And it's just something wonderful to get your own eggs out of the coop every morning. Sometimes they're still warm. (laughs) (laughs) And the color of the eggs and the nutritional value of the eggs, I just think it's fantastic. So, yes, you could buy, um, you know, organic eggs, free-range eggs from your supermarket. here in Malta, we do not sell them. We just eat them all ourselves. Yeah. 
So what are the economics here? No, it's, I, I could actually, if I wanted to, figure out how to sell. Because like Charlotte's asked if, if ever we have extra eggs, she'd be delighted oh. to buy them. But it's just too much hassle to get them up to Victoria on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, but I mean, so no, but we spend we, about... We buy a 10-year-old bag of food, feed. What, that about once a month. month. Yeah. Is about that a month, month or is it two months? Or? No, it's one month. So 10 euros a month now that they're settled and established. Yeah. And for that, we get... Well, we have a flock of 11 Five at the eggs a week time, you know. No, we, we average eight or nine eggs a day because some of my current flock right. are older. And um, so that's eight times seven is 72, 56 eggs a, a week. Mm-hmm. And we go six times seven is 42. So we have a, a, basically an extra dozen or so eggs a week. Right. Well, no, I mean, just in general, if, if he wants to run the numbers, because I don't know how much eggs cost where Carl lives, but if he wants to... For 10 euros a month, we are getting how many eggs a month? 56 or so. 56 eggs for 10 euros. Yeah. Over the course of the month. Okay. Um, righty. 50, no, we me. get 56 eggs a week. That's what I'm saying. That's what I kept saying. A month. How much for a month? Sorry. Well, times four. Times four. All right. Well, okay. So there you go. Um, because it's thir- uh, year- oh, Okay. Yeah. Hopefully, Carl can then we get run eight, those numbers. Eight uh, eggs a day yeah, or like, so. I didn't think we got 50 a month. That was crazy. No, we no. Got, we okay, get like so hundreds a month. Yeah, 56 eggs a week-ish. Yeah. Call it 60 if you mm-hmm. want. Times four weeks is 240 eggs a month. Right. From 11... For 10 euros. Chickens. So there's their numbers. Okie doke. And do the dogs chase them? No. No. But you just train your dogs not to do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the chickens are taller than our dogs. We have little dogs. And chickens are mean. Chickens are mean and nasty, so... Well, they peck. Yeah. And a dog's inquisitive nose is rather sensitive, and a chicken will peck it. And then they just go, okay, I'm not really interested in bothering that chicken anymore. Yep. Okie doke. Let's see here. That was it for Carl's chicken questions. Now he <laughs> wants to know, do you spend any time in the water around Malta? Either swimming, boating, or relaxing on beaches. Oh, very, very, very rarely do we ever go onto beaches and relax. Mm-hmm. Just done our thing. We're not that sort of people. Yep. Um, we don't have a boat or anything. We love to scuba dive, but weirdly, we have not scuba since we've been here. Yep. And um, I, I, I used to swim actually quite a bit, but I haven't. The but last that was the first couple year of years, two, first yeah. couple summers, and. Yeah. yeah, we are not taking advantage of it. We we live here all the time. Yeah, we enjoy the views, but oh, yeah, yeah, we uh, really are not taking advantage of it, which is crazy. Um, but I mean, I grew up on a boat. I grew up my whole life swimming. Uh, I was as comfortable in it water as out of it, and I don't know. I just feel like I've been there and done that. Let's see here, Priscilla Honey Pie. Oh, what do you know? Wants to know what made you decide to get chickens. Oh. So it's back to the chicken I'm show. Chickens. Okay. Well, I just uh, really felt that I wanted to have a good quality source of protein readily available. And um, I, I've never been a bird person. I don't like parrots or parakeets or any of that kind of stuff. I don't like the noise they make. I don't like the mess they make. So it's actually very odd that I like my chickens so much because they do make a mess and they do make noise, but it's outside. Um, but especially my first flock, I was very, very interactive with them. Um, touching them and petting them and, you know, just finding out all sorts of things about chickens that you would never know unless you have a lot of really close contact with them. Um, so, yeah. Well, did I answer right. the question? That, no, that was not the answer. 
Priscilla, she just lied to you. What is the question again? The question is, <laughs> what prompted you to get chickens? Oh. I will tell you what prompted Jen oh, to get chickens, right. uh, Priscilla. I just looked it up while Jen was coming up with that story. Because <laughs> the real story is there's a novel called Last Night by author Alex Scarrow. Yeah. And Jen read the novel Last Night. And in the novel Last Night, um, peak oil happens. And overnight, all of electricity goes away everywhere in the world. And that book scared the crap out of Jen so hard. She became so obsessed with peak oil. She would just talk about it. I mean, she was genuinely worried. This is going to happen. Yep. We have to be ready for this. And afterwards, we started stockpiling water and um, canned goods. And we got chickens. Mm -hmm. So that if... Um, but, and we talked about this quite a bit, Jen was not ready to get a gun. And I kept saying, honey, if you really think this is going to happen, and you think the worst of the worst in, in the book, the novel, Last Night, by author Alex Scarrow, is going to happen, because <laughs> she was convinced it's coming, and we have to be ready for this, I said, we should buy a gun, honey. And she refused. So she always hedged her bets a little bit, but um, that's the real reason we first got chickens. Correct me if I'm wrong. I did say I wanted a good source of protein. She actually made me read this book to convince <laughs> me that we should get chickens. <laughs> Have I misspoken at all? I think not. <laughs> <laughs> then there you go. That's the real story. Uh, do you do you uh, <laughs> coincidentally? I was just going to say, do you recommend the book? But I looked ahead to Priscilla's next question. Does Jen have a Goodreads account? <laughs> if yes, she should share her username. If not, would she consider ever creating one? It's an online community to keep track of books you're reading, have read, want to read. Um, Priscilla really just likes to follow what people like to read. Oh, okay. Um, actually, somebody else was asking me about what... Um, there was a sci-fi... I've sort of been on a sci-fi kick about futuristic trends. Um, and somebody was asking me about that. And I, what was it on one of the live Q&As? So I've meant to actually get that um, put somewhere. So, no, I don't have a Goodreads account. I was thinking there must be something on Amazon or something. Because I was going to add it to my blog my jennifer.net page but mm. it was such a palava to try and i was like oh my god i'm not just eh. there's got to be an easier way and i haven't found it yet so maybe it's a goodreads account all right i don't know i'll, I'll look into it are you promising priscilla a goodreads account with a thorough uh, cataloging of the last 200 books you've read no how many books have you read in the last year mm, i don't know probably 100 mm -hmm. maybe not that many maybe 80 mm -hmm. but a lot all right uh, right, now back to Joshua, who I assume wants to know nothing about chickens. <laughs> I think we've covered everything chicken possible. Jen and Richard, where do you think the level of openness and almost constant calling each other out, leveling or reminding each other about particular differences, weaknesses, or flaws, where does that come from? What? Um, the fact that we are very open, that we do not, you know... Are, because are, people ask us quite, I mean, people have asked, yeah. oh, what's my biggest weakness? And you've answered it and stuff like that. Oh, you're just talking about like on podcasts and stuff. Yes. They're not saying that board gaming in particular is keeping all of our foibles right. No, they, because the question is, where does our openness and um, ability to constantly call each other out and remind each other of our weaknesses and flaws, where <laughs> does that come from? I don't think we're constantly reminding each other of our flaws. Are you calling Joshua a liar? I'm saying he has a pretty limited amount of time that he's peeking into our lives. Yes. He is referring to the fact that we are willing to do this in public. Many people, many married couples, 
if they decide to do a podcast and people ask them personal questions, their answer would, well, most people would say, well, it's the kind of person we're not going to talk about. But if they did, they probably wouldn't be quite so open and honest. Okay. They would hedge. And um, Joshua wants to know, how is it that you guys can be so open and honest? Well, we've been married a gosh long time. Okay. All right, his question continues. Uh, the time that comes to mind is when Richard was talking about having a very analytical mind, and Jen does not... Um, Richard, about having a very analytical mind, and Jen does not have those skills or language to do that. I've never said, obviously, you're a very analytical mind, but I have said you do not have the language to analyze game design. Mm-hmm. You just don't care. You just care whether it's fun or not. Yep. I mean, you, you, it's, 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 you know... Uh, I'm amazed at her, I was I'm just amazed at her reaction and her ability to understand her many many strengths and also her areas that she does not excel in while get w- without getting defensive that I said that and that you were like well STFU to you too buddy well, let me tell you what you're bad at <laughs> so that's what he's talking about the fact that at one point I said yeah Jen just doesn't have an analytical mind for game design. Yeah. Not I, that you couldn't do it, of course, because you could. I could. But you just don't care. Well, it's just, I'd have to spend so, a lot of time and energy doing it, and I don't particularly Many people care. would have viewed that as me calling you stupid, and yet um, you did not take it that way, and you didn't get defensive. So where does that relationship come from? That I, we don't have to yeah. tippy-toe or, um, you, know, you know, we can be open and honest yeah. with ourselves and our audience. Yeah, I guess we've just, we've always had that sort of a relationship where we've just been honest with each other. And, you know, if something bugs me about you, I usually have to figure out what it is. And I, I usually spend some time thinking about it. And then once I figure out what it is, I just tell you what it is. So I don't play those games that a lot of people play where, you know, you have to, you know, f- try and figure out why I'm acting pissy towards you. And, oh, well, you should know. And blah, blah, blah. I just can't be bothered with all of that drama. I just think it's, you know, first of all, it's up to me to understand what is upsetting me. And if I don't know, how the hell am I supposed to expect you to know? So, no, I think I just go away and I figure out what it is, and then I tell you and we talk about it. And we figure out if there's a solution to be had or if it's really just something I have to fix within myself. Where does that come from? That comes from, I think my parents got, well, they divorced. And I know my mom stuffed an awful lot of anger and would... uh, Is she what? I'm sorry? You said stuffed anger? Yeah, she stuffed it. So eventually it came boiling out. And at, you know, whatever the straw was that broke the camel's back. Are you, you, the way you just said that, that happened after the divorce. But that's not what you're saying. Uh, I don't know. I think it's, was, it's been a lifelong challenge, okay. let's say, to know thyself. and so. But yeah, certainly in my childhood, I, I understood that there was a lot going on that I didn't necessarily understand and that whatever it was that caused whatever the explosion was, that that was probably not the actual thing. That that was just the straw on the top of the camel's back. So I decided early on that I did not want to have that kind of relationship. And if there was something that was making me angry, I needed to figure out what it was, and then we'd talk about it because I just didn't want to be exploding about things about something that had happened two years ago that had just been building and building and building and building. And I can think of probably three or four times in 26 years where I have actually had my own little explosion and just totally lost my cool and screamed and yelled and slammed doors and whatever because whatever it was, I had been stuffing it. 
Um, and then after I did that, I calmed down and I figure out what it was and we talk about it. But I mean, in 26 years, well, I think that's pretty good to have only a few <laughs> really big, you know, issues that had to be talked about. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Sure. Okay. For myself, I come from a family of givers. Um, I, I remember very, very young, constantly being agog at my mom and my grandmother refusing to let each other pay for gas at the gas station. Just absolutely refusing. And my family never accepted help and was always trying as hard as they could to give it. Uh, you know, it, it, was, it was just this, this mantra that was instilled in me to be very, very accepting of, of other people and um, almost to an aggressive level accommodating of other people. And I think that was just instilled in me as a small child based on you know, the circumstances I grew up in. And uh, yeah, and as a result, I am the way I am, which is, I don't know, I, I try very, very hard not to be judgmental. Um, you know, I try to recognize that you know, I've got, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, my number one guiding precept in life is not the golden rule. That's my number two, but, um, Hanlon's razor, which is never ascribe to, to malice that which can be, um, explained with ignorance, which is kind of a mean way to say it, but it basically means you know, uh, people aren't bad. If if it looks like they've done something bad or mean, it just means they didn't see something. They you know they missed something. Their perspective was different, and um, you know it's not coming from a bad place because people aren't bad. And that's just the circumstances I grew up in, and it just kind of tempers how I interact with everybody. And ninety nine point nine percent of all of my human interaction is with Jen, um, and that's how I try to live with her. Uh, you know, and, and you know, if, if she does something that I think is wrong or I don't like, I, I don't try to hold it against her. I don't think it's a character flaw. I just try to understand. Well, you know, from her perspective, what she just did made perfect sense. <laughs> and, uh, it was entirely 100% the right thing to do. And it's on me to try and figure out, well, okay, just because it seems wrong to me, well, that's on me to figure out why it is. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, because so that's, I can be a lot, I'm much higher maintenance than he is. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of zero maintenance that way. Uh, let's see. Second part of the question: Would you attribute this honesty and openness in front? Uh, would you attribute this honesty and openness in front of a bunch of people to anything in particular? Well, I kind of thought that was the first question. Um, yeah, let's see. Oh, where, oh, well, the first question is where did it come from? And um, so the second one is kind of an offshoot. Do we? Do, um, the the fact that we can do it in front of a bunch of people can we attribute that to anything? You know, I cannot figure out if it's an intercultural variation. The stage of life you're in makes you more comfortable in yourselves and your relationship. If it has to do with years of being in front of an audience or something else completely. And I would love to hear both your thoughts on that. Wow. Well. Because it's one thing to just do it amongst ourselves and nobody's listening. But apparently we've done it enough on camera that it's certainly caught. Or on. Well, we are filming with the camera. It's caught Jason's attention. So how can we do this openly? Wow. I think it's. Probably just who we are. Do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't think there's any difference. Um, I mean, Jen, and I uh, visualize, if you will, a big, gigantic L-shaped couch. <laughs> I'm lying down on one side of it. Jen's lying down on the other side of it, and we are positioned such a way that as we're talking, we're actually just looking at each other. So we're pretty much just talking to ourselves anyway. Yeah. There's nobody else here. Dogs. Um, you know, I mean, these could just easily be questions that you know. I mean, 
you know, we read out of a self-help book or something like that. Which, by the way, Jen reads a ton of self-help books. You know, I a, did. I don't haven't done for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I should. You're right. Jen used to read a lot of self-help books and trying to find herself and you know find how she wanted to view the world and how she you know wanted to you know all that stuff. So I don't know. I mean, nobody's here. Uh, if people ask us, I mean, I don't know. These would be questions that some people would be very uncomfortable with over the dinner table. But I don't know. Yeah, why? no, I think the question is, why are we open books? No, I think I've always been more interested in having actual conversations with people. The the social politeness stuff has never been of interest to me. I'd rather have, you know, just real conversations about real stuff, I guess. I, I've known that about myself for but, a long time. Yeah, but what is it that makes you an open book? Because this, this podcast proves that we'll talk about anything. Yeah, I think... And a have, lot of people just aren't comfortable with that. Yeah. Oh, well, I guess if you want to have real conversations, you have to be prepared to have real conversations. All right. Which you means gotta, you have to you be get, open you enough. Give. Yeah. All right. Um, my open and honesty, it's... Actually, I was a, I'm was a very closed-off, closeted, quiet, keeps-to-myself person by nature. I think I've talked about this in the past on the podcast. In high school... I went from being a quiet, shy, pizza face kid who <laughs> a wore a hoodie shiet. before hoodies were cool and listened to Beatles on his Walkman all the time to overnight instant like one of the most popular, well-known kids in the school because of a weird quirk of fate. And I had to sink or swim in that very, very quickly that I was put on a stage, literally. Um, and I very quickly developed a persona, and that is my Rado persona. And part of that persona is just being... Just being out and loud and, <laughs> um, and not being afraid to talk about anything. And, you know, the, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not necessarily looking for deep, meaningful conversation like Jen is. It's just, it's almost kind of a defense mechanism that, you know, if you can just be willing to just talk about anything and have no, not barriers is the wrong word. I can't think of. Holds barred. Uh, filters. Um, uh, you know, it, it, was, it, it just became part of the persona and everybody, yeah, before Rada was a word, everybody just knew that's who Richard was. And, you know, you know he was a straight shooter and, you know, uh, nothing was off topic. So it's just, it's, it's kind of habit for me. Uh, let's see. Finally, I love cooking with a skillet or pan. Ah. And it is the only cooking instrument I really want to upgrade in my kitchen. Would you ever consider posting some of your recipes uh, that you uh, make just with a skillet and pan? Are there any current favorite dishes that you and Jen are enjoying uh, with that type of cooking? Malta-specific examples would be great to hear more about. <laughs> this is what we're ending on, Nephi. Okay. Um, I don't have recipes because I just throw stuff together. <laughs> Whatever. And we you mostly use have. a skillet or pan. I do. Well, yeah. actually, no. Actually, lately you've been baking a lot of stuff, that's, right? But yeah, but summer's coming, so I'm not going to be using the oven very much. Oh, okay. So that's that's your your cooking preference has to do with the ambient temperature. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, because the oven heats up the flat too much, uh-huh. and when it's hot, or it here, heats it's it hot. up enough when it's cold because it gets cold in here. Yeah, it's nice when it's when it's cooler in here because you have a bit of extra heat. Um, I don't have any recipes because I, I do. I just use whatever we got. Yeah, and you just throw, throw stuff together, in yeah. and sizzle it in whatever oil or fat you're using at that time. Yeah, but it's always either olive oil, coconut oil, or animal. Oil, mm-hmm. like you know, bacon grease or something. I don't use safflower or any of the artificial canola stuff. I think that stuff's all just horrible for you. So, nope, it's olive oil, coconut oil, or animal fat. Okay, and just throw various things into that <laughs> and simmer till sizzle and serve. 
and then drizzle lots of cheese on top. Yep, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. Yep, it's Whatever's vegetables and meat and cheese and oil, basically. Yep. All right, there you go, Josh. Sorry, I wish I could be more specific. Yep. <laughs> um, she'll get right on that after she comes up with her Goodreads account, I suppose. <laughs> Okay, folks, that's it. We are done again. Uh, episode 24. Two years of this, honey pie. Wow. Two years. Well, isn't this the beginning of our third year? No, that will be next month. I mean, because this, we're, we're, we're kind this of. This is a week finishing late. it up. I should have done this. Because um, the first one we ever did, you know, we, we finished in April, and then the first one we ever did was at the end of May, early June. So this is the end. Of, we just finished year six. Uh, okay. Episode 24. In the can. In the can. And thanks for listening, everybody. Questions, comments, concerns, as always. You can hear more of us random <laughs> pontification. More about chickens. Uh, by sending them to questions at rado.com. And otherwise, hope you have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. And bye-bye.